0: This episode of Software Engineering Daily is part of our on-site coverage of KubeCon 2023, which took place from November 6th through the 9th in Chicago. In today's interview, host Jordi Mon Company speaks with Justin Cormack, who is the CTO at Docker.
1: This episode of Software Engineering Daily
0: is hosted by Jordi Mon Companies. Check the show notes for more information on Jordi's work and where to find him. Hi, Justin. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Good to be here. My first question to you is actually about QCon itself and open source in general. So, I am a bit fearful of this magic spell that bond together two great elements of life and business, which were open source as a ecosystem that is fantastic for ideas, for new solutions, for new businesses, for new collaboration, new projects. And I mean, hard to say free money, but relatively easy access to financing and specifically venture capital, right? Which requires probably less requirements or strong requirements than banks and more traditional financing. The ecosystem open source has not changed. There are a few challenges that we will talk a bit, this question actually, but that nature of open source being a blossoming in every sense has not changed too much, I think, but the money has definitely gone away. It's way tougher to get financing and so forth. And I'm not sure that is coming back. So do you see things changing in the way that I just described? And do you think that is a permanent change or not
1: so much? There's definitely a change. I mean, the, the financing situation is definitely harder. I think there's still a, a reasonable amount of early stage funding available. I think that you still see quite a lot of activity with you know, pre-seed, seed, angel funding, but i think that people have to be pushed towards getting a real business earlier if they want to continue getting funding rather than just being able to kind of carry on
0: and is that possible what did you just say well i mean i
1: think that one of the things is that people finding business models around open source has always been a kind of interesting thing and you know a lot of people find it hard you know i mean been at Docker for a long time, we found it hard the first time. It took us a lot of iteration to get around and restructuring to get around to finding a successful business model. And so I think that it's definitely difficult. But I think we have more patterns of success now. We have we have examples. We have, you know, companies who have CNCF projects and business models and the two things are sufficiently separated that they're not competing with the open source project and i think that you know so because they've planned what the distinction between which bits are open source and which a are, are commercial is in a way that makes sense and and monetizes and that's it does really help if you plan that up front when you're thinking about open source project i mean obviously with a lot of open source projects you're just scratching an itch and trying to ex- yeah. experiment with something but thinking about like what does this look like as a business and what does this look like as a project and how am I going to get contributors? I mean, one of the roles of CNCF is to be that neutral ground where people can work together and collaborate on things. And and it's also true that many of the projects are things that are just not businesses as is. They're components of something else. I mean, you know, although the business is kind of different. You know, so something like Container D, you know, is not a business, but... It's very, very widely used to enable all sorts of businesses. You know everything from you know Amazon to Docker. To, you know we're all using container D for to enable very different businesses. But then the business is not about selling container D; it's about selling solution to a problem that just needs that kind of infrastructure to be built. So I think those infrastructure projects, you know, like Kubernetes itself, those infrastructure projects are you know are not so affected by. The Funding cycle, but they 're more affected by you know the degree to which people want to collaborate and you know people have realized that most of the software they use is open source and as well, which is of course another kind of key change that 's happened since you know in the last decade or so is that
0: it's pervasive it 's everywhere yeah, and I do actually like a lot what you mentioned, like the role of the cNCf in being that neutral ground for everything to Compete, collaborate, sprout, decline—you know the natural cycle of things—and also care about equal competition and financing or funding, rather. I mean, not that they, the the is involved in that, but it does actually not oppose it at all and welcome
1: it. Well, itself. I mean, we, we're specifically in the charter we do call out that we don't, we're no king making. We're not going to choose which project's going to win. Occasionally, we do things like. Sit projects down and try and persuade them to go i mean open Telemetry is a great example where you know there was a deliberate process of like trying to merge to one standard because yeah. the customers really needed the one standard and and it's you know been remarkably successful but in general we have competing projects that do the same thing, which was also it was partly a reaction to the way OpenStack worked and that kind of building one stack doesn't give you a foundation when things change and when different things turn out to be important and and so on and but that also you know it also means we have you know Ruthlessly competing yeah. people to trying to make their project better than the other one, the other alternative in their space.
0: I quote James Governor, founder and one of the main analysts in at Redmonk, and he says in a tweet this I think this morning. I realize some folks have beef with the Linux Foundation for being a commercial organization, but if this is commercial, then I am here for it. The focus on inclusion, access, community, learning, and sustainability at the heart of the Cloud Native Computing Foundation is just so welcome. Probably misread a bit that, but the general gist is so correct. And I think that this definition of it is, is I'm in it for it too.
1: You know, open source is about community and and I think the and the CNCF has built this very tight-knit community where, you know, it's uh, people come to KubeCon because their people are at KubeCon. And, you know, there's a lot of collaboration that goes on between companies that are also competing. And it's, uh, you know, it's just, we work together because... We recognize that value, even if we're competing against To the point of
0: funding, by the way, and to close this chapter, just, I think, yesterday, ChainGuard announced a B round of 60-something million. Testify Sec, another company in the same sector of supply chain security, announced this morning, maybe, I think, a seed round of 7 million, which is quite big for a seed round. So, so yeah, this thing is still moving. And there might be headwinds, economic headwinds, Again, I think the open source ethos and the momentum behind it is equally unparalleled and equally fast and thriving in that, thriving in that sense, I'm not concerned.
1: Funding is just becoming, as a, you know, early stage, there's still quite a lot of it. Obviously, there's still those areas like AI, which is obviously getting lots of funding. But then like later stage funding, it's just being more selectively applied to the companies that are showing the right kind of commercial traction and that's you know that's the it used to be that just like everyone would get a series A without any particular kind of the gates for series A were a little bit fuzzy for a while and around you know you could get money from someone (laughs) but (laughs) now, now it's more kind of the strong companies are still getting funding it's the you know it's the weaker ones to a
0: certain degree this is in a way nature healing itself I mean it is true that free money or very easily accessible funding is, although it sounds counterintuitive, is not healthy for an ecosystem. There needs to be some sort of, not only profitability criteria, but other tighter requirements. Anyway, let's shift gears into Docker itself. What was wrong on shipping a binary? I know this is a complete shift of gear shift and turn around the car itself, but yeah, like, we will get into the second wave of DevOps, but What did Docker fundamentally change in what Adam Jacob is calling the first wave of DevOps that arguably Docker led, among others? What was wrong, again, on shipping a binary that had everything packaged in it? And there you go. That's all for you.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that the answer was the really lack of consistency. Because like, yes, you can do that with, say, Java and maybe Go, but Shipping a Python binary is very difficult and different, and there's a whole lot of tools that goes with it. And actually, like software, we build you know quite different kinds of software, look quite different and it's packaged in quite different ways. And Docker just provided one way that basically was consistent. It didn't force you to change how you built things. It didn't say, oh, the only way you can deploy your things is if you can create one single binary that fits into the JVM. It's like... No, actually, you can just make your software work and then you can ship it to production working. I think that there's a number of things that we changed. I mean, I think the you kind of get a sort of change budget when you're making something new. And we, for example, the workflow that you build and test stuff and then you, then you don't update it in production, you ship a new version. That workflow was quite. It was a big change. And, you know, weirdly, um, people don't actually know, but you can actually update containers in production if you want to. But don't tell anyone, But because we (laughs) we managed to persuade them not to. And it's actually incredibly valuable because it means, you know, it fits with the model the way, you know, you build it, you test it, and you know that the actual version you've tested is the version in production. And, you know, I think that that kind of thing affects things like supply chain, which we could talk about later, but it's like knowing the exact version that you had in production last Thursday when there was a security incident or performance incident or something enables you to really... Understand your system that much better.
0: So then because I wasn't present. I was actually more on the other side I was in the C++ industry when this happened and I did miss a bit the cloud native revolution in a way the first wave of DevOps Let's call it that. Let's keep the same framing that Adam is using so this appealed to a smaller population of the software engineering developer population right because C++ C those compiled languages were happy with uh, shipping their binaries, Java the same probably, but Python was not that big then, right? Now,
1: Python has been hit big for a long time.
0: But not compared to the addition of C++, C and Java, for example. Well, it would be a lesser amount of developers, right? No, no, oh, even okay. a
1: decade ago. Docker was actually originally a Python-based company. We moved from Python to Go quite early on, but Docker was launched at PyCon in a... That was the community that Docker came from, but that was back when things like Node.js was becoming prevalent in the enterprise quite rapidly, and like there was kind of ton of innovation around like thinking about like developer productivity, like how do we actually make it easier to develop things, and so and then there was there was the Ruby on Rails thing that happened that was a little bit before cloud native but it was all you know that was a story about developer productivity how can we ship applications faster and that's where a lot of the drive for cloud native came from those kind of ideas like how can we ship things faster more effectively more often the continuous delivery book is like 15 20 years old now but it was i remember the reading and like this is going to make a big difference to how we do things and you know taking kind of time But it's really those kind of ideas of really driving that cloud-native culture.
0: Do the underlying reasons that have driven the industry from monolithic applications, and probably in compiled languages, but not necessarily, to microservices, to what seems to never become mainstream, but it's still there, which would be functions, uh, serverless, are those the reasons that explain that evolution, although uh, evolution is a biased word, meaning that The end is probably better than the beginning. I don't think that's necessarily true. But the underlying reasons for that evolution, would you know which ones are those? And do they map to the reasons that
1: explain, well, physical hardware, VMs, and container runtimes? Microservices and containers grew up together. And I think there was a, I mean, there's a number of reasons for that. I think the real driver for microservices was actually organizational change. It was organizations had suddenly had a lot more developers cuz software was more important and having hundreds of developers working on one application turned out to be really hard
0: except if you're Google.
1: Yeah, I mean some organizations do it, but it's difficult. I mean yeah. Facebook does it too.
0: Yeah, because they've got Incredible engineers, right? Well, they, have a, they have they built a, a lot of
1: custom tooling for doing that as well. And but most organisations found that having you know a team of six people working on an application was more effective. And so they sp- things into these units. Now, there's an argument that the unit maybe shouldn't be the unit of delivery, yeah. and that maybe a network boundary isn't always the right thing, especially as things get more and more fine grained. And I think that some of the work around WebAssembly and kind of exploring some of those ideas, but mostly like you want to get that human understandable context of something that I can understand the whole of the application. And so the unit that I'm working on should be that size, whether that that necessarily should correspond to exactly how it gets delivered is maybe less clear.
0: So you don't see applications being delivered in the shape of functions in the being the main way in which applications
1: are being developed in, I don't know, 10 years? I, mean, I think functions are interesting because almost everyone is using functions for stuff, but they're using it not for the whole application. They're using it for parts of an application, mostly, or lots of glue. And I think there's a few things. I mean, part of the reason why containers were successful is you didn't have to change the way you write applications much or at all. You could just run the same application, put it in a container, and that was... Made adoption really easy functions tend to ask you to change more stuff, and they also there's potentially more of an architectural change that you have to think about. I think that if you look at some of the work on functions it's actually kind of it's kind of interesting that you know thinking about like how you glue them back together again and I'd say so there's things like temporal and things that are effectively and you know kind of deliver long-running functions, step AWS step functions, things like that, that kind of glue them back together. And there's a bunch of work Microsoft's done on on kind of, t- you know, turning things into functions automatically and putting them back together and like working out where the boundaries are. Because, I mean, one of the things about going more fine-grained than standard microservices is that you get a lot of pieces. Yeah. <laughs> and they're very fine-grained. And like, again, that's where, like, do you want a network call when it's that, you, know, you end up with performance issues because it's too fine-grained and things like that. So, again, I think that it's not necessarily that... I mean, it's a useful way of thinking of things, but it's not clear it's, you know if it's architecturally always the right thing. I mean, and performance is a, is a really interesting area so, as well. Exactly.
0: So there's two elements about... I've been talking to people about container images in general, and two things crop up in these conversations. One is a trust element, of which we will talk... Later on, as part of my questions about applied security, and the other one's heavyweight or weight. Are they in general, you reckon, or will the industry evolve into lighter weight container images? Is that something that is a concern?
1: I mean, I think there are different reasons why container images are large, and and so it's a little bit, you know, it's a bit nuanced, because sometimes, like, some container images are too big because they have things in that you don't actually need, but you don't know you either don't know that you don't need them or it's difficult to not have them in there but a lot of container images are large could you give me an example of things that are included that you don't know you know lots of people do not want a shell in their container for security reasons so that you can't do a you know certain people can't execute things in your shell i like kind of now it's also extremely difficult to develop as a developer in a container that doesn't have a shell. We've actually just, we're building out a set of tooling called Docker debug, which we're shipping soon, which is an extension now, which is actually great because it basically gives you a set of, you can add a set of tools to a container without changing the actual image it mounts on top. And so you can add a development environment even to a container that has nothing in, which is actually really kind of useful when dealing with those things. A lot of customers just have really big images for good reasons. We have, you know, we have customers whose container images are nine gig. That's huge. It is huge. But it, like household names that use these large containers. And it's like, that's the way that their organization develops code. And a lot of the AI stuff is really oh, yeah. big. I mean, I think the data and models big. And
0: that's going to bring way more weight to yeah, any and, given.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so I think that... I kind of think that sometimes the people who advocate for lightweight things are just running Hello World and not really understanding how people really build applications. And so I think, you know, you kind of need to understand the reasons why people's code is the way it actually is and what they're actually doing.
0: What about software supply chain in general? Is there any aspect of it? And it's a huge, broad topic that I'm laying out here, so feel free to pick the area in which you are focused because it's impossible to have everything in mind. But yeah, what area of supply chain security and transparency is the one that most concerns you, you most be well, like, focused lately? Yeah,
1: I mean, I, I gave a talk at Reject on Saturday about attestations and verifiability, and I think this is, really is one of the areas. I mean, so... Could you define what attestations yeah, are? So, but let me, let me start kind of from the other... Like, oh, yeah. you know, you've got... There's lots of talk about bill of materials and S-bomb, and like, I want to know what's in the image. And one of the things that we've discovered is that everyone's tool for generating S-bomb gives you a different answer. And so, like, and this is not a great situation, really, to be in. And so one of the questions we asked a while back was like, well, if you give me an S-bomb, can I check if it's actually true? What, what do you mean, by the way, if the S-bomb is true? For example, you could give me, the attacker could give me a container with an S-bomb saying this container's got, you know, it's got Python, this version, whatever, and you could omit to tell me it's also got this program I wrote that hacks you, you know, and so one of the questions is like, it's basically trying to answer the question of like, if you say it's got Python 3.1.2 from Debian in it, is that true? And can I go and look, you know, take the Debian package and find it and can I check off every file in this container and see if it came from something you've listed in the SBOM? So attestations are basically statements like this like a, a component of the SBOM, like this image has this version of this package in from Debian, for example, would be an attestation. And then the the verifiability piece is can I actually go and Check the statement, the attestation that you've added to this, and I think that because a lot of the time, you know, the attacker could just give you a load of false information about it, and how would you know? It's like you can. There's a lot of stuff on like signing, where someone says that's okay, but like, does the person really know? Because a lot of this stuff, you know, it's built in an automated process. It's hard to really. We need tooling that helps us inspect these processes that go on and help us ex-post check that they were valid. And so we've been doing a whole whole bunch of work around this kind of thing. So with Bastion Zero, we launched OpenPubKey, which is basically designed to give you attestations on OIDC pieces. So, for example, if you built something in GitHub Actions, it'll, you can basically attach the JWT... Mind you, various things, but anyway, you can effectively, implicitly attach it and say this was definitely ran in GitHub on this git commit, and I ran this build action on it, and GitHub have standing behind the fact that this is true, and I can go and check this later. But I think there's a whole lot of work really about, like, how can I really verify this? And it really fits into the whole concept of zero trust. It's yeah. like you want to, you don't trust something because it, of where it is, you trust it because it has enough information I and mean, the metadata on it that you can verify that you can have confidence.
0: Yeah. So stepping back a bit, I know this might be a bit of a controversial topic and I don't mean to force you into a hot take, but what is the main problem with bombs and with bomb adoption, is it the tooling that is just not yet there for it to...
1: Generate a... I mean, basically, I mean, generating an SBOM X post by looking at a bunch of binaries is hard. Most of the tools, I mean, there's bits of it that are relatively... First of all, assuming you've left the package metadata there and haven't deleted it, you can look at the package metadata from the various packaging systems that you've used. But then there's things like when you build a jar it's got a whole lot of libraries in it and they're packed in various ways that turn out to be somewhat inscrutable. When log for shell came out, most of the tools couldn't detect it and they had to be patched in order to detect it because it turned out there were six different weird ways you can build jars and the tools could generally detect one or two of them. And if like if you're compiling C code and like and you statically link things, it's really hard to see. So we're trying to get to a point where, and one of the areas we're really working on is trying to get to the point where we generate S-bombs at build time using BuildKit because at build time, you actually have the information. And I think we've been doing some, you know, kind of experiments around things like Nix, which, because Nix has build yeah. descriptions that are guaranteed to be complete because of the, by construction. And so you can actually generate really nice s-bombs from them and if i mean we we've, we've had this sort of term of executable s-bombs like the s-bomb gives you enough information to construct the entire thing you could just pull the bits and run it effectively from the s-bomb if, if in principle and there's no kind of some experiments we're doing like that but i think that constructing things with s-bombs in mind rather than trying to scan and understand them is really where we're trying to move but it's you know it's kind of early work but the way we kind of Built Docker Scout is designed, to, you know, kind of with that kind of thing in mind. We're not trying to. I kind of see, you know, kind of scanning and examining images as a kind of polyfill for really doing it properly. At build. Yeah. and so we're looking at building all that stuff into BuildKit and thinking about how we make it more, you know, accurate at build time and what the ecosystem needs to look like to make that happen. And it's, I think, it's a really, you know, I think it's a really. I mean, it's, it's, it's definitely difficult, but it's a yeah. really important area.
0: Yeah, yeah, that, that would help indeed. Build more trust and transparency to, in particular, the Docker supply chain—the bit that is built with Docker. But I guess if everyone adopts it, it wouldn't help.
1: Well, again, I think you know, yeah, the what we we're talking about before about like the whole story about immutability—it makes supply chain easier. And it's like there's a set of kind of properties of software delivery that makes things work better from a supply chain point of view. So if you care, you probably want to do that.
0: That's absolutely true. That is a fantastic feature of containerizing your applications. Yeah, you're absolutely right. So DockerCon happened when? Two months ago?
1: Yeah, I think. A a month ago, maybe? I think it was a month ago,
0: yes. And you had a blast over there announcing your new AI Offering I'm going to call because there's two things that, I mean, you, you announced plenty of things and there were plenty of customers there, Ikea and so forth, talking about the way they ship code with Docker and so forth. But within the realm of announcements, two caught my attention. And one was this new AI offering that I'm calling, which is basically a partnership with Neo4j, Olama, and Langchain. And I wonder, how did you go about this? wrapping this partnership and what was the reasoning behind that yeah. and why these partners?
1: This was, I mean, it was really, you know, people are excited by Gen AI and want to know how to get started and how to build things. And like lots of new people are coming who've never built something in this ecosystem because it's kind of new and exciting, and especially with the Facebook Lama local models, which I mean, we particularly wanted to support because people are kind of really interested in what can I run locally on my machine and test out the stuff and well, how does it work? What's it once yeah. it built? So the aim was really to make something that was just, you know, Docker Composer up, I can run it. And that was our kind of aim. I mean we chose the partners because they kind of they were the pieces we kind of felt were, you know, widely used. I mean I think, you know, there were existing people we knew and with. And so you know, kind of it was a a really nice kind of community get to, you know working together.
0: So basically, what do you get with that command? What...
1: So you basically get, you know, you go to rag stack. So that's basically retrieval of augmented generation. So it's basically, you can feed your data. One of our examples was just like, feed in Stack Overflow questions about something, and you can see that you get better answers about things than the LLM knows on its own, because it's not, you know, these are things that are not as... Data set, and you can get it to answer specific questions about them. So, you, and, you know, we have examples where you can build the classic things like put in a PDF and ask questions about it and things like that.
0: Nice. That's quite nice. Yeah. I do like the maintaining the Docker experience of just building this thing really easily and then fostering, you know, leaving it to the developer to be creative with whatever he or she wants to build. And yeah, the demos were amazing. I mean, it's brilliant and easy to spin this thing up. The other thing that was AI related was Docker AI, which in this case is an AI companion. I would argue an AI assistant. Yeah, that is meant to help you work with Docker, right? Yeah. To build stuff with Docker, and this has the form of a VS Code extension. I think the name is extension, plugin, whatever. Yeah, and it has the form of a notebook. And I'm intrigued about that decision because I think. I'm not questioning it I don't have the skills to question anything and it's not the point but in my own experience developers are way more familiarized with two ways of interacting with assistants within the realm of an IDE and that would be slash commands with comments and requesting things through that or lately more so in a chat format in an open chat format like if it was WhatsApp or any other sort of
1: like literal yeah. empty space
0: yeah. but you you went for another third yeah, we do,
1: well, we, we do actually have suggestions interface as well. But like, we actually wanted something that would basically kind of be a like a terminal experience, because we wanted to be able to, you could run Docker commands, it could suggest you run Docker commands. And it could then look at the output and, just, you know, see if what happened, whether there was an error, what the error was, and so on. And we needed to have the context of what your project was and so you could see the file. So you can see like, oh, have you got a Docker file? If you haven't got a Docker file, maybe the first stage is you want to create a Docker file and things like that. So we wanted that context. And I think there's it's difficult to do that kind of contextual thing in a terminal. The warp have if you've seen the warp terminal, they've, no, they've got no, a, but I agree. Yeah. AI assistant, but it, it's actually a nice interface and it's actually kind of similar in a way to the notebook interface, but different. But it kind of feels slightly similar. But the AI at the moment doesn't have the context of your files, so it's kind of it can't do some kinds of thing. But I think that one of the interesting things about AI, I think, in general, is a lot of what we're going to have to explore is what these interfaces look like for different kind of tasks. And I don't think that we know yet at all what they're going to look like. You know, I think that one of the things, it all depends on what, the AI can do and how you're going to, you know, it's like, do you want to have a co-pilot pair programmer or do you, are you going to think of your AI as like a, a team of, you know, if you have a team of programmers, you don't sit and pair program with all of them. If you have six of them, you write them do a ticket and then maybe do code review when on their pull requests and things like that and you know maybe that's more the workflow we'll have with AI like I think there's a lot of different kinds of ways that we could interact with it and we've chosen some of the ones that are closer to how we work now but that's not necessarily where it'll go in the medium term as well I
0: haven't tested it but now that I think about it twice I've watched the demo anyone listening to this can go and watch it by a Docker engineer in Docker YouTube channel, and DockerCon, the recordings from it. But yeah, because in my mind it felt awkward initially because notebooks were, I think, designed for data science, right? But they do have this layout that feels very similar to docs, to well-written docs with examples and stuff like that. And it might be a fantastic way to explore Docker documentation, right? Not necessarily Docker documentation, but you know, that kind of feeling that the docs have been brought to you and the specific chunk of the docs that you're looking for or you're missing can be brought with examples, right? It
1: lends itself very well to sort of like that display of information, doesn't it? I think. Yeah, I, I agree. Because again, it's like we wanted it to be runnable things, not just copy and paste things. And like the notebook gives you that flexibility well, exactly. to actually run the thing and then you can go back and edit. And so we're trying to get that feel of it's a very really interactive, this form factor is unfamiliar thing that we're kind of definitely something we're very aware of and we spend a lot of time, you know, talking to you. And it's, but I think the, I mean, it's also kind of fascinating how notebooks have just been siloed to data scientists and they're kind of like... They're yeah, way of, more versatile than I think, right? Yeah. I mean, I think software engineers find them weird because there's all sorts of issues like Checking them into version control has, was historically difficult, and and things like that. And there's this kind of like how do you productionize them? But the yeah. but the but like when you're doing kind of research about something, when you're trying to understand a problem, like the kind of laboratory notebook kind of model is where they mentally kind of come from, where you write down your experiments and what you did and what you've learned. And I kind of like that. I was very influenced by Nooth's literate programming book, of which he wrote from read many, many years ago, and that kind of model of writing about code, it's a, where the writing is perhaps more important than the actual code because it's the explanation of it. And I think that you know, code bases that are there for readability are really important and like understanding and. I think it's also. I mean, it's also like we're still trying to understand how AI is going to help us, yeah. and what context windows are going to be. And again, what we we're talking about earlier about microservices and the amount that you can keep in your head is the amount that the AI can keep in its head, even less than you, the same as you. Kind of like I think those questions are kind of interesting because those affect how AI will affect the way we code as well.
0: So to wrap up, I mean, anyone that is interested in what these things look like and more, I mean, you've mentioned Scout. can't remember if you announced anything, probably the general availability of Scout at DockerCon. Yes, that's right, yes. Okay, but I mean, anyone interested in just messing around with these products, just go go, to Docker's website, but also to the recordings from DockerCon. And you, you gave enough scoops and revealed enough things, but I'd like to wrap up this conversation with, not necessarily what's coming next, because everyone's infusing, and everyone's using this word of infusing AI into everything, right? I interviewed yesterday here at KubeCon North America, GitLab's CPO, David DeSanto, and he was, well, not him personally, but GitLab is infusing AI into many, and it makes it a lot of sense to summarize merge requests, find the best code reviews. So is Docker planning to infuse AI elsewhere? Yeah, again, not asking you about the specifics, but what's your mind on that?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that there's definitely an infusion thing that you can do, but there's also like there's also a question of like... You can also sprinkle and... Uh, you can sprinkle and... If, yeah, <laughs> but, but there's also a question of like... I think that the, the question is... Because the infusion route seems the kind of obvious route, but sometimes something like AI is actually going to change a lot. And infusion into existing things might be the wrong answer, and the right answer might be to do different things. And so I think that really trying to understand that balance of, like, what's going to change by how much and which things are we going to stop doing? I mean, like, maybe, like, for example, if the AI writes code for us, do we need an editor anymore? You know, like, if it does all the editing, do we need an editor we just know or just somewhere to read the code? And, you know, and it's like, so, yes, you can infuse it into the editor, and that's been very successful as an incremental move, but maybe that's not the long-term Change The long-term change might be we don't really care about editors anymore and we do our work somewhere else. And those kind of issues are kind of quite important to think about because if you are spending too much time infusing in a place that's irrelevant, <laughs> then you're wasting your time. <laughs> By the way, and we mentioned the
0: first wave of DevOps, which happened when Docker was founded around that time. And many other things were happening. And there's a second one according to Adam. Let's see how that pans out. Although I was not part of that movement, in a way, I was in the software industry, a more less fast-moving bit of it, but the same industry after all. But one thing that feels overwhelming to me at least is the pace of innovation with AI. I mean, I know there's a huge difference between marketing announcements and what really is happening, but it still feels that what really is happening is incredibly fast. Is it equatable to what happened, again, when Docker revolutionized Software delivery? delivery, so this thing is happening in a really, really fast pace, even faster than that
1: one. Do you feel particularly... I mean, I think that things do feel like they you know, things are moving fast, yes. I mean, like, you know, there's a nice graph somewhere of, like, the fastest adopted consumer products. And each time, you know, to 100 million or something. And did OpenAI like beat? They, like, yeah, AI. yeah, they, yeah they was okay. absolutely. Like, ChatGPT was the fastest oh, growing... Consumer product ever, and it was like you know if you compare it to the adoption of the mobile phone or Facebook or you know the other things, like I mean, part of that is that it's quite easy. It's easy to consume at least in some sense, but I think the. So, I'm but, thinking but, of the developer angle for developers because they. Yeah, no, but, sorry, but I think yeah, that was in ChatGPT in general. But developers have adopted AI pretty rapidly. I mean, developers are pretty. Sometimes quite conservative about tools, but, you know, Copilot was extremely fast adoption. Well,
0: today, by the way, GitHub Universe is happening today, literally, and tomorrow. And the CEO of GitHub just announced that they are kind of rebranding GitHub itself as an AI company in a way. They are doing Copilot for everything, for GitHub itself too. Not only features within GitHub, but GitHub itself is going to be a copilot. I'm not sure if I got that. It's it's incredible.
1: But yes, I think, yes, developer adoption has been really quick. I think part of the reason is as well that software has this kind of ecosystem where we can actually use tools that are not perfectly accurate more effectively because we have testing, for example. Like if you're getting ChatGPT to generate you legal opinions, it's somewhat, you don't have a way of testing if they're correct. Whereas if you get it to generate software, you can right, does it pass the test? So there's actually a kind of a feedback loop that controls for its potential limitations more easily. And I think that thinking about the kind of controls we built into the software process and how you would, you know, you can really potentially build a lot of reinforcement around making sure it's working well, you know, in software in a way that you can't necessarily in other domains. So I think it's actually really promising. You know, get your AI to do TDD and, you know, I think is is actually a sane strategy. I mean, you know, thinking about like, why would you ask your AI to generate untyped code when you could use strongly typed code is like, it doesn't care. Like it doesn't have a kind of a learning path to it. Like you can make it do all the difficult things so that you get more assurance about the quality of its output. And I think that's a really interesting kind of thing that comes out of the ecosystem, that, again, that we've built. I'd like to finalize this with a bit of
0: a legacy news and build of nostalgia, but today I think Mozilla announced the ditching, finally, Mercurio, which is funny because we were talking at the beginning about how only a few companies are able to build their own sort of like super strong dev tools, Google being one of them, they're famous for that mono repo and the builds that allow them to build it. But Facebook, you mentioned Facebook or Meta. But I think Meta is the only big company right now using Mercurial for their source control and
1: version control.
0: But yeah, this is the end of an era. If they ditch it, no one else, Git will be 100% of the market.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, there's very few... I mean, a lot of work's gone into Git because it's so popular, like into into scaling it and fix it, working with people's use cases. And there's also definitely a kind of ecosystem benefit of using the same version control software and things. So I think there's some of that in it. But I think one of the things about companies building their own and developer tools is that they can actually end up way worse than using off-the-shelf because first of all, you have to onboard your developers to these weird tools they don't know about, and secondly, you know they can get quite ossified, and you end yeah. up in a world where, like, unless you keep investing, you end up because you're building it just for yourself, you haven't got the kind of community building it with you. You have to do a lot more work, and so you have to be very confident that your use cases and the value is very strong for you not to use something off the shelf. And I think that. I mean, it's been, it's been, you know, being in the developer tools business at Docker, like, it's interesting to watch, you know, the kind of developer tooling market and people, you know, coming to the realization that, first of all, developer, buying developer tools is a good idea, having developer tools is a great idea, developer productivity is something that can be improved with tooling. And I think that things like AI-based tooling is something that's actually helped convince some people that, okay, actually, this is, you know, there's a there's a return on this investment. But you know, historically, people spend surprisingly little money on developer tools versus the production tools. And I think that is starting to shift. And people realize that developer productivity is really, really, really important. And yeah. like, these developers are expensive. And if they can do more, oh, that's great. And if you can get out of their way, but also if you can give them tools that they already know how to use and they're familiar with and they understand the workflows and things, it's, it does help. So I think that if you go to somewhere and they don't use Git, like how much value are you really getting from not using Git?
0: (laughs) Honestly, I'm fascinated by the case. I've never interviewed someone from Meta or Facebook, but yeah, they are clearly an outlier because they, as far as I know, they are, as Google and many other companies are quite secretive about their own tooling, but I believe they've got the, they might, by the way, be using Git and Mercurial, but as far as I know, they use their own version of Mercurial, so a fork maintained by them. And they do the same for PHP, I believe. They've got their own flavor of PHP. So, yeah, they need to onboard their new developers on at least those
1: two things that are completely unique to the world, I guess. They do publish papers on some of the stuff. There's a Yeah, there's they released
0: a... Buck2, their built system. Yes,
1: yeah, so they, yeah, they do a fair amount of open source. Yeah. There, and, And the people who work on their tools are actually quite... I can probably introduce you to some of them as well. But they released a paper on their serverless framework a few weeks ago, which was really interesting. But their use cases are again just quite different. And the choices they've made are quite unique. And it's kind of interesting to compare it to what other people are doing and look at the why and things.
0: But look, if Borg-inspired Kubernetes, and you and I are here because of Kubernetes in a sense... Who knows if that, you know, something that METO and any other company releases something that has a very unique use case, but then eventually is open source, then it sprouts a new CNCF in a way.
1: A new well, product. quite a few of the CNCF projects have come out of companies doing exactly that. I mean, you know, things like Backstage out of Spotify and Istio, actually not, not all Istio, the project from Lyft. Envoy? Envoy, yeah. It was a Lyft project and Argo was into it. So, so like, the other route is like, if you have one of these sets of problems, then bring your software to a larger community and make it open source and get that community leverage around to build it.
0: Well, Justin, thanks so much. If anyone is interested in reaching out to you about anything that we've talked about, where can they find you? You can
1: find me on I'm still on X Twitter still
0: the artist formerly known as Twitter X
1: uh, you can just email me justin at docker.com yeah or LinkedIn
0: lovely thanks so much for being with us Justin take
1: care thank you